All right. Uh, well, we are in the uh, letter to Titus, and we're going to finish up a section this morning uh, on uh, Titus chapter 2, a section where Paul gives countercultural instruction to the new Christian congregations on the island of Crete. And as you know, that uh, in this section, in particular from verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, Paul gives what we could call household codes or rules for for life in the household of God. And we've gone through many of these already. We've looked at the expectations for elderly men in verse 2, the expectations for elderly women in verse 3. We've looked at the expectations for young women in verses 4 and 5, and then the expectations for young men in verses 6 to 8. And now we come to the end of these, these instructions and look at what Paul's expectations are for slaves in verses 9 and 10 of Titus chapter 2. And as we look at the text, this is what Paul writes. He says this, beginning in verse 9. He says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not sh- or, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And this morning as we look at this text, we're going to see Paul's line of logic here as he begins by, first of all, listing his expectation. It is a singular one that he lists at the very beginning of verse 9 where he says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. That's the fundamental, all-encompassing expectation, just like with the young men back in verse 6, where Paul says to Titus, teach them to be sensible, and that was the overarching, all-encompassing expectation. Now for the slaves, Paul gives one of those as well. They are to be subject to their own masters in everything. But he continues, and he gives some further application of how that subjection looks. And he does that in the second half of verse 9 and the first half of verse 10, where he says this, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. We're going to look at four of the applications that Paul draws out of this expectation of living in subjection. And then finally, we see Paul's motivation for this in the second half of verse 10, where Paul says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. We're going to see that once again, Paul attaches one of these purpose statements as he did back in verse 5 with respect to the young women and then verse 8 with respect to the young men. And now he says, now there's a grand design, a purpose by which these, these slaves living in that context can have their lives contribute to the glory of God through their adornment of sound doctrine. Now, immediately when we get into this text, it raises the question about slavery and how we are to understand it in that day. Let me give some background on this because it does help us to understand better Paul's motivation here, Paul's insight into the slave component of the church. Slaves made up a vast segment of society in ancient Rome. In in the Roman Empire of Paul's day, there were perhaps about 50 million people And of that, anywhere from 10 to 20% of that population uh, was made up of slaves. So 5 to 10 million people in that day were slaves. And because of its location in the Mediterranean, and because of its culture, the island of Crete 
served as, as kind of a center for the slave trade. You can see in the Mediterranean, a lot of ships would pass by Crete all the way from, from the, the area of Spain and, and Italy, and then, of course, North Africa, all the way to Syria and so on. A lot of ships would pass by, and as well, the Cretan culture very much contributed to piracy. And so this was a hotbed for the slave trade, And from what we can tell with Paul's instructions here, that he addresses the slaves, he doesn't address the masters like he does in Ephesians and Colossians. It appears that at this early stage in the development of the church, many slaves had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but not very many masters. And so Paul takes time to address them and provide them as well as those who are part of the household of faith for how they ought to live their lives in a way that would be consistent with the gospel message. Slaves in the Roman Empire in those days generally came from five sources. They usually would, would be the result of prisoners of war, that, that when battles would be waged and peoples conquered, the men would be taken as prisoners or as slaves. They would be made up of the descendants of other slaves. They would sometimes be sold into slavery to pay debts, whether that was due to their own desire. Sometimes they had massive debts and they put themselves into slavery in order to cover those debts, or they owed someone money and because they couldn't pay, they were taken as slaves in order to repay that debt. Many slaves were made up of of abandoned infants, those who were considered to be unwanted and were then found in the forests or by the garbage dumps would be taken and, and used as slaves. Or they would be captured by slave traders. And the Roman Empire, in large part, was known as as a a slave society because so much of the economy was dependent upon slaves and because of the, the very high percentage of slaves within that society. Now, the Romans never questioned the legitimacy of slavery. It was, in that day, the accepted norm. That's what all cultures had done before them and after them even. It was just what they did. And, and, and usually ethnicity did not play a, a decisive role in this. In fact, many slaves were even of the same nationality as their masters. As I said already, it was not unheard of for people to sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off debts and then over time buy back their freedom through earnest labor. In those days, any free man could, uh, was, was permitted by law to own slaves. And, and slaves occupied various roles in society at that time, it, anywhere from gardeners to shepherds, builders, painters, musicians, entertainers, cooks, maids, midwives, doctors, teachers, clerks, and secretaries. Even someone like Luke could have been a slave in that his patron... Uh, Theophilus could have perhaps at some point owned him and commissioned him to do his own uh, education and then serve as a physician for him. We don't know. It's speculation. But sometimes those who had the highest education were often, and, and, and the highest skill level were often those who belonged to the class of slaves. A slave owner could free a slave through a process of what is called manumission. And so if you were a 
a free man and your slave had, had performed the labor, paid back the debt, you'd go through a particular process and free that slave. And if you're a Roman citizen and you did that, then the slave that you freed would then become a Roman citizen as well. Many of them, freed slaves, would even take on their master's last names upon being freed. Manumission was not uncommon. Some embraced it as, as a path, a way in which to, to, to move up on, on, in social mobility. Manumission often served as this incentive for some to work and uh, to work hard and, and therefore get released and enjoy a, a higher status of life. So one historian said this about slavery in that time of, of, the, uh, uh, of, of ancient history, that slavery was more of a process than a permanent state. There was this movement of social mobility through it. It was common in those days. Now, what's interesting with Paul, when we draw it back together, we know Paul is the one who set in motion what will lead to the emancipation uh, of slavery, the theology that is going to lead to that. He does instruct slaves, as we're going to see, to focus on contentment in that particular state, but he, rece- he refers positively to the potential of, of being released from slavery in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to look at that in just a moment. He looks at manumission and the idea of release into freedom as, as something good and something to, 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 to work toward. He also warns believers not to sell themselves into slavery, as would have been a temptation to those who were either very poor or wanted to move up on the, the, the social ladder. And the text that we look to for that is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. Now, for many of us, this text is a little odd because we're not familiar with the context, but here's what Paul says to the, the slaves in the city of Corinth. Were you called while a slave? Now, the calling there refers to gospel witness. So, were you called, were you called by Christ to be one of his own, that effectual calling, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are also able to become free, rather do that. Paul is saying, look, you you have in the grace of God the, the ability to persevere under this, but if you have the opportunity to become free, do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. And then he says this, you were bought with a price, do not become slaves of men, referring to that practice in those days of using slavery as a way to pay off debts. And then he says, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now, in light of this, we come, with, in light of this background, we come to Paul's instructions here, and we want to work through it. In order to understand what what Paul is teaching to the church and draw from it the instruction for our own lives today, Paul starts off with his expectation, and the expectation here is is comprehensive submission. Verse 9, notice what he he says in chapter 2, verse 9 in the beginning. He says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. The word for bond slaves there is the word doulos. We're familiar with that. It is the standard word for slave in that day. And Paul used it 
even in this letter, in a metaphorical way to describe himself. If you go back to the salutation in chapter 1, verse 1, he, he says this, Paul, a bondservant, it really is the same word here, it's a bondslave or a slave of God. As Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, look, if, if you are a free man and you are called to Christ, you're still a slave to God. And that's what Paul recognizes of himself here. He says, he says in 1 Corinthians, if you were called, if you became a believer as a slave, you're a freedman in Christ. But Paul uses the term here in, its, in, in 2 verse 9 in its literal sense, and it shows that, that Paul had a concern here for giving pastoral instruction to the slaves as well. We see in Paul's letters, and as I said, Paul sets in motion here what will lead to the emancipation of, of slaves. He, he calls them elsewhere as co-equals. They are equal in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, in Christ, as is to be the case in the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul uses language which would have been radical in that day to refer to, to those who are in slavery. Of course, we know the letter to, to Philemon as well, a very powerful letter where Paul petitions on behalf of Onesimus to this believer, Philemon. And we read very, very uh, impressive, very radical words in verses 15 to 16 of Philemon, where Paul says this, For perhaps he, Onesimus, was for this reason separated from you for a while, referring to Onesimus' salvation, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. And when you understand the language of that day and you see what Paul is doing here, he is, he is using language here to, to say to Philemon, Philemon, you have to change your perspective. He is your brother. He is your brother. Paul believed that they were equals, and he treated them as an integral part of the church. He addresses them numerous times throughout the letter. And he considers them to be brothers, part of the church, part of the body of Christ, having gifts and abilities that contribute to the church and are essential for the church's life. But he says here in, in verse 9, he says, urge the slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. That verb there, to be subject, is, is the chief expectation that Paul has as he delivers to Titus his own teaching to the church that Titus is to deliver in the different congregations scattered throughout the island. And the idea of that verb is to subject oneself. It's stated in such a way that, that, uh, that, that calls for not a kind of submission that is done against one's will, but a willful act in recognition of order and rank and authority. The term to submit was often used in, in military contexts to refer to soldiers who recognized their proper rank in the structure of the army and how they were ordered under different levels of leadership going all the way up to the commander. 
Paul uses that same verb here, but he uses it already, he's used it already in Titus. We saw this same verb used back in 2 verse 5 to describe the attitude that older women were to inculcate in young wives. The older women were to teach the young wives to be subject to their own husbands. And if you look at chapter 3 verse 1, we see the same verb that's used. And notice again, Paul's recognition of authority and structure. He says this in chapter 3 verse 1, remind them, Titus, remind all of them. He's speaking now to all believers in the church. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed. Everyone has to understand their their place in the structure that God has providentially ordered. And so Paul calls upon the slaves to recognize that as well. He says, be subject to their own masters. This is not an open-ended, unlimited kind of subjection. It was not subjection to a particular class. It was subjection to their own masters. It was limited in scope, but it was broad in extent. It was to be in everything. Now, the question that arises at this point is, how do we relate Paul's instruction here to slaves and the idea of submission to authority when we we realize that this is something that, due to Paul's own teaching, is going to pass out of existence, or at least is going to be recognized as a sinful, uh, result of sinful structures. How do we recognize that in comparison to Paul's other commands to submit to different authorities in the church? And the answer is in this. Paul's instruction to slaves is unique. He never, as he addresses the believers in the churches, he never ties that to any transcendent principle. He recognizes its existence, but never ties it to any transcendent principle to justify its reality. And that's different than where Paul calls other believers to to recognize submission. For example, male leadership in the church. Paul establishes this, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15, by showing that male leadership in the church is based on the creation order. Paul ties that reality to transcendent realities. He ties it to the creation order. Even of the husband's headship in marriage, Paul establishes this by pointing to Christ's submission to the Father. The incarnate Christ submitted himself to the Father's will, and Paul uses that as the transcendent principle which establishes the husband's headship in marriage. Even parental authority over children and the calling upon children to submit to their parents is established by reference to a transcendent principle. Here, Paul, in in Ephesians 6, refers to the, 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 the fifth commandment, to honor one's parents, using that as that transcendent, transcultural reality by which to call upon children to obey their parents. But nowhere where Paul refers to slaves, does he ever connect in any way the reality of slavery to any kind of transcendent principle. He does, however, believe that in that context, they can still live as Christians, and they can use their situation to bring glory to 
to God in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. Now, how does he call upon them in particular to do this? Now, let's look at the middle portion of this instruction where Paul draws application from that that comprehensive expectation. Notice the middle of verses uh, middle of verse 9 and, and then into the first half of verse 10, he now gives us application. He says this, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing good faith. Here is Paul's application of that principle in four areas, which undoubtedly were challenges in those days, issues which would have been difficult for the Christian slaves in those days to to understand, how do I, in this context, live my life to the glory of God? What do I look for? How do I show this submission to authority? Paul gives four of these, and as we look at these four rather quickly, we're going to notice something. Paul's going to give two positive applications and two negative applications. The first one, a positive and a negative, are going to deal more with attitude. Paul is going to say, as as you think of submission in this context, first it's going to deal with your attitude. He's going to give us a positive one, be winsome, verse 9, and a negative one, do not talk back, verse 9. And then he's going to deal with action. In the beginning of verse 10, a negative one, do not steal, and a positive one, show you can be, be trusted. Now let's look at each one of those. First, the first application, he says, is this, to be well-pleasing. Verse 9, to be well-pleasing. The term well-pleasing was used in that culture generally to describe someone who was generous, who would do things to please others and use their generosity, for example, to, to please others. Paul uses it frequently with respect to the Christian's responsibility or the Christian's attitude toward the Lord. In fact, he uses it most often, this this verb to, to please, he uses it most often to describe how Christians are to act toward God. We're familiar with Romans 12, verse 1. We, we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable or well-pleasing to God, Romans 12, 1. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, even says it more succinctly. Here Paul writes, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. Over and over again, Paul calls upon believers to realize we don't please God for salvation. It's, there's nothing we can do to merit it. But what we do do as those who are saved is order our lives around this great ambition, and that is to be pleasing to the Lord. But here in Titus, Paul uses this concept to describe the approach slaves are to take to their own masters. They are not only to be passively submissive, but they are actually to be actively winsome. As we're going to see, particularly with the, the, the end of this the, the, the set of instructions, that there is a great evangelistic effort that Paul is, is aiming at here. He wants them to be winsome. Now, somewhat in our day, the concept of, 
of, of winsomeness has been sullied by those who see winsomeness as the need to compromise on biblical truth so that we are accepted by the culture and its love of, of depravity. But that's not the kind of winsomeness that Paul is speaking of here as he instructs the slaves. Instead, it is the kind of lifestyle that is attractive. And Paul realizes that even in those bad circumstances, that those slaves could live such a life that their lives would have an impact on their masters and would be winsome to them. Secondly, now a negative one, but another one dealing with attitude is also found at the end of verse 9. Paul says, not argumentative. Not argumentative. That term for argumentative literally means to speak against. We've seen this term already in 1 verse 9 where Paul describes the responsibilities of elders and, 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 and describes that responsibility as being able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who speak against. Elders have to have the ability to, to, to refute those who speak against sound doctrine. It has the idea of speaking the exact opposite. But here, Paul uses that term to say, don't be argumentative. And by that, he is, he is calling upon them to, to not speak back to their masters. And probably pointing to the fact that as newly converted slaves, there would be this temptation to speak defiantly against their unconverted and uncouth masters, those who, who remained unsaved and who lived that, that lifestyle that, as we know from 1 verse 12, the testimony that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, it would be very easy to speak back against that, to criticize, and Paul says, don't do that. Don't be argumentative. Thirdly, another negative, but now dealing more with actions, Paul says in the beginning of verse 10, he says, do not steal. The language here is this, not pilfering not pilfering. The idea of pilfering refers to the act of setting aside for oneself. And and here it has the idea of skimming off the top or somehow embezzling. The term is only found three times in the New Testament. The only other place where this is found two times is in dealing with Ananias or in describing Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5. In Acts 5 verses 1 to 3, we read of how Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, skimmed off the top, and then lied by saying, this is the whole sum. We're giving it as this great grand expression of sacrifice. And of course, they were struck dead for their lying to the church. One writer in describing the situation that would be there in on Crete or anywhere in the Roman Empire, he he describes it this way, quote, stealing would be a temptation to slaves who could have access to many things that might not be missed in small quantities and who might justify their actions by saying either that the item did not count and would not be missed or that what they stole was justly owed to them anyway. And Paul says, don't steal. That's not the Christian way. That's not how we will show our witness in this very difficult circumstance. And then fourthly, another action 
application of subjection. This one, a positive one, is found as well in verse 10. He says, but showing all good faith. In strong contrast to the common practice of of, of pilfering, of embezzlement, Paul says, don't do that, but do this. And what is he calling for? He calls for them to display the opposite action, and that was that they show. The idea of to show is to put on public display in plain sight through their personal example, a kind of lifestyle. And what they were to show was that they were faithful, that they were reliable. One translation puts it this way, showing all good faithfulness. Another person translates it this way, showing that they can be fully trusted or showing complete faithfulness in what is good. Paul adds to this idea of of showing faithfulness by adding another word here, by by saying it's all good faithfulness. He's, He's putting the spotlight on the purity, on the virtue of this, and calling upon them through their lifestyle to show that they can be trusted in the smallest things, showing that they can be trusted when no one else is watching, showing that they can be trusted as stewards. And that would then lead to the accomplishment of a grand goal. And that's what we find in the last part of the verse. Now we move from not only the expectation in the beginning of verse 9, the application in the middle of that section, verse 9, verse 10. Now we find the culmination of this in verse 10, the doctrinal adornment that comes from this. The doctrinal adornment. Notice what Paul says, so that... So that. It introduces another purpose statement. We've already seen a couple of these in this very section. We saw it back in chapter 2, verse 5, just a few verses previous, where Paul summarizes the good, virtuous actions of young women culminating in this, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then he says this of the young men, who show that virtue of being sensible, he says this, so that the opponent will not be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. And now here's the purpose statement for his instruction to the slaves, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. To adorn, the verb that's used there, it comes from the verb cosmeo and you probably can hear the association with our English word, the word cosmetics. It means to cause something to have an attractive appearance through decoration. Now, Paul is not saying that somehow the the doctrine of God our Savior is somehow lacking inherently in beauty, but he's saying that the doctrine of God our Savior is something that's abstract, something that is invisible, And he's calling upon the slaves here to cause this to have an attractive appearance through decoration. Paul is saying this doctrine needs some decor. And our lives, Paul says, is the way that we do that. The doctrine, of course, is the content of 
Paul's teaching. It, 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 it went from everything from the basic gospel message that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Something as simple as that all the way to these very instructions are part of the gospel, are part of the doctrine. We see it back in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul uses that same word for doctrine when he says in 2, verse 1, but as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, and then he launches into this whole household code. That's doctrine. So Paul says to Titus, instruct the, the slaves to live this way. By doing so, they will adorn the doctrine, the teaching, the message, and he calls it the message of our God and Savior. We're going to look into this title a little bit more. We have already, and we see that in Paul's letter to Titus, he refers to Savior. He uses that title, Savior, six times, three times, including our text here, in reference to the Father, and three times in reference to the Son. He uses the title applied to both the Son and the Father as as just another illustration of Paul's Trinitarian theology. And notice, as he brings this this instruction to an end, he says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. He brings it all the way back to what he said at the beginning of verse 9, where he said, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. It's actually the same terminology. He comes back to that same idea that that extensive kind of submission in their circumstances would give them the opportunity in every one of those circumstances to adorn the gospel of God. Now that is something that helps the slaves at that particular time realize that their lives are not worthless. They can, through this redemptive theology, use their lives to the glory of God. One commentator states it this way, by itself, doctrine can be abstract, but lived out nobly, it may work magnetically to give rise to admiration. Then it may communicate the saving grace of the Christian message across even the kinds of social barriers that separated slaves and masters. The reality of it was that the people who would be the best witnesses and perhaps have the only exposure and access to those masters would be those Christian slaves. And by this kind of instruction, Paul rescues the slaves from a fatalistic attitude and shows them how they, through their following of these instructions, can live their lives for the glory of God. Another writer says this, So slaves at the bottom of the human hierarchy are able, through the splendor of their conduct, to honor God and increase the attractiveness of the gospel in the hearts of pagans. One final quote from John Chrysostom, that 5th century preacher, as he taught on this text, he said this, quote, as he addressed the slaves of his day, he says, Look not to this, my good friend, that thou servest a man, but that thy service is to God, that thou adornest the gospel. 
Then thou wilt undertake everything in obedience to thy master, bearing with him, though impatient and angry, without cause. Consider that thou art not gratifying him, but fulfilling the commandment of God. Then thou wilt easily submit to anything. And what I have said before, I repeat here, that when our spiritual state is right, the things of this life will follow. He goes on to say this, For nothing is more engaging than good manners, nothing more agreeable and delightful than meekness, gentleness, and obedience. A person of this character is suitable to all, for virtue is superior and prevails over everything. And that's exactly why Paul, in just a few more sentences, is going to call upon all the Christians to be submissive to the rulers and the authorities, ready for every good deed. Now, how do we draw implications from this? Well, Paul certainly set in motion the theology that would lead to the emancipation of slavery. But we can see here, too, nonetheless, that there is a a theology here as it relates to employment, as it relates to, to how we work in structures, how we pay off our debts, how we come up with the means that we need to survive. And so in closing, I want to draw just a few applications here for us today, particularly as we think of our, our, our lives in the, the workplace. Number one, submit your view of submission to God's Word. Uh, it is common to have those, that, those temptations to grumble against those in authority over us who tell us what to do. It's a common thing, especially in the younger generation, and it's one of those things that we as parents have to struggle with with our children and helping them understand the workplace environment and that they are not the boss and that they have to recognize that and instead submit themselves to the authority that is there. So this calls upon us to review our own understanding of submission according to God's word, to recognize that God has instituted authority over our lives in various ways and that it is not inherently uh, impossible within those contexts to live to the glory of God with the right view of submission. Number two, embrace your position of submission as an opportunity to make God's truth look good. Again, this is not because God's truth is somehow lacking, but it is abstract, especially to the non-believing world. And we can look at our position, and we must look at our position as, as those who are under authority in the workplace as a special platform for evangelism by recognizing that we do live under authority and by responding in the right way to that authority. Paul says, you can make the gospel of our God and Savior look good. Number three, Express your submission through both attitude and action. This is what Paul called the, the, the uh, Cretan slaves to do, to look at and examine their attitudes and their actions. And there were particular problems in, in those days with respect to their circumstances, temptations 
that they faced, and Paul zeroed in on those. But as we look at those same things today, we find that we're tempted in the same way. There really is nothing new under the sun, and and that's why we must think of, of our understanding of the workplace environment, our understanding of the bosses that are over us, those who are our managers, that we must think of both attitude and action, both that which is contained in words and that which is contained in our practice, and consider how to express to the glory of God submission in that environment. And finally, number four, apply your submission in Paul's four categories. Remember what he said, and these things still have tremendous impact today. Be well-pleasing. Do not talk back. Do not steal or pilfer and show that you can be trusted in your own work environment, whether you have just showed up on the job and you're brand new or whether you've been there already a couple of decades, these four applications that Paul gives related to submission in that economic environment will treat you very, very well. Be well-pleasing. Be winsome in your submission. It is to the glory of God. Do not talk back. Avoid argumentativeness when you're constantly at edge or on edge with, with your superiors and you're constantly trying to, to correct or you're trying to somehow dig at their authority, Paul says, put that off. Do not steal. Do not develop that mindset that, well, they don't give me what I deserve, so I'll take matters into my own hands. Paul says, put that off. And then finally, show that you can be trusted. That is a wonderful, winsome an evangelistic opportunity that you have, that regardless of your kind of work that you do, it can be redeemed for the sake of evangelism. Whether you're, again, just starting off in in your career or very advanced, that you show that you can be trusted with anything. And that will create a platform of evangelism to people who may never darken the door of a church, a kind of class or kind of a group of people who, who may be so isolated in their kind of work that they may not normally hear the gospel. But you, through your submission at work, can be the one to put it on display and reach a very difficult contingent to reach. Let's pray about these things and consider how the Lord would have us, to his glory's sake, apply these things in our own lives today. Father, when we read these words, we confess to you that it is one of the core reactions of our flesh to resist authority. That it is deep within us. We thank you that at one time, You broke that down, and you enabled us to bend our knee and confess Jesus as Lord. You bought us with a price. You made us your own. And that that was not due to our own own goodwill, but you did a supernatural work to open our eyes and to lead us to that submission. But that fleshly resistance remains, and we ask that you would reveal it, convict us, 
We pray that especially as we interact in that economic sphere of life, you would give us a deeper appreciation for those you have placed above us by your own providence and good design, and that we would seize the opportunity not just because it is the right thing to do, although it is, but we would see the tremendous evangelistic opportunities that come because it is so rare and so contrary to sinful nature. Father, give us those opportunities and then enable us by your grace to be winsome, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faithfulness. Use us then as a witness in this this world so that your gospel, your doctrine would be put on beautiful display in our lives. And we ask this so that you would receive the glory for that beautiful doctrine that it is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.